Take your Bible and turn to Romans 13. Thirteen verses six and seven are kind of the where we're going to dive in here in this topic. Romans thirteen verse six: Because of this, you pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them: tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We're working our way, as you know, through these first seven verses here in the top of Romans 13 for quite some time now, and it really deals with our, the issue of our relationship as believers, the governing authorities, and I'm going to say this phrase a number of times tonight, and I'm doing it intentionally, but it really specifically has to do with our heart attitude towards authority. That's the word, our heart attitude. Because again, we come and we understand that God is sovereign over the affairs of men, and that again includes governing authorities. In fact, all authority belongs to him. Uh, he has delegated authority to men in a variety of different roles and fashions. Uh, again, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, we've spoken uh, to the fact uh, that, that God has put in place for the good of men governing authorities, rulers, for the promotion of good, the restraint of evil, for the protection and the preservation of God-given rights and the welfare of people. And public officials really are performing an act of service to God because, again, government's ordained by God. Now, it's true that there are wicked and unjust rulers everywhere, but, but God is the sovereign, and God, for his good purposes, in his plan, he brings glory to himself and salvation to his elect, his elect even through wicked and unjust rulers. And as I reminded us last uh, Lord's evening, uh, we, we need to pray for our earthly rulers, First uh, Timothy 2.1, first of all, then I urge you that entreaties and prayers and petitions of thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, even wicked rulers, God desires that they'd be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires that they would repent. And therefore, we should pray for them. Not just complain about them, but we should pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Again, we're ambassadors for Christ. And as ambassadors for Christ, uh, we, uh, uh, in this life, we understand that life is temporal and we are eternal. And we represent an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. <clears throat> so we're headed for glory ourselves. We want to make sure that we don't get caught up or taken out uh, or in the way with regarding to um, uh, temporal matters around us. And, and there are many. So we need to keep our focus on God. We need to keep our focus on an eye to eternity to help others around us see the reality of their need for the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I alluded to it last time, and I want to retouch on this uh, issue here for a moment, that in chapter 13, again, these first seven verses, they deal with our relationship uh, to governing authorities and the duties and responsibilities that we have towards them. And when you come to these verses, sometimes people say these verses really don't fit here in the context of the book, that they're somewhat of an intrusion. They don't flow in the argument. But I disagree with that completely. And I, what you need to do is go back to chapter 12. Go to the top of chapter 12, verse 1. 
Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So again, you have 11 chapters of theology, 11 chapters of doctrine, 11 chapters laying out basically the doctrine of justification by faith alone, all due to the mercies of God. And a result of the mercies of God in our life, remember when we went through uh, chapter 12, there's a number of relationships, certain duties and responsibilities, various relationships we have because uh, um, we've come, become believers uh, uh, in the person of Christ th through the gospel. So we have certain responsibilities and duties towards God. Right? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your, your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we have responsibilities towards the person of God to present the entirety of our lives to him. Uh, again, living, holy sacrifice. And then we have general responsibilities towards each other in the, in the body of Christ. Again, because of the mercies of God in our own life. Responsibilities on how we treat each other. Responsibilities how we act towards uh, others in humility. Responsibilities we have serving each other and building up, building up each other in love. And then we saw we have certain responsibilities based on to, to those people who are not Christians. Certain responsibilities to those who treat us well and certain responsibilities to those who treat us poorly. And certain responsibilities even to those who do us evil. So when you come to chapter 13, Paul's just really carrying out that theme, that line of thinking responsibilities we have because of the mercies of God towards us in Christ. And again, specifically at the top of chapter 13, responsibilities we have towards those in authority. Again, we who have been saved by grace through God's mercy in our life through the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul's just really challenging us believers to live out the doctrine we say we believe in, right? That to think rightly as, as citizens of two kingdoms, to be the very best citizen we can be in the kingdom of men because we understand we belong to the kingdom of God. Chapter 12, verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So again, all of our life is to be lived through that lens, the lens of the mercies of God towards us in Christ. Everything we do, everything we say, how we act, how we interact with everybody around us on all levels. We are no longer to look like the world because we're and no longer to act like the world because we're not in the world or of the world. We've been transformed and changed. Now we need to think and act differently and see all of life, again, through that lens of the mercies of God in our life. And, and basically, again, as you come to the top of chapter 13, we have two responsibilities, uh, two imperatives. It's be subject to authority and then pay your taxes. That's it. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 6, because of this also you pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And that's what we looked at last week. We started looking at this issue of taxes from a biblical standpoint. And I said when it comes to the issue of taxes, we're really speaking about another subcategory. We're talking about the issue of money. And when we come to the issue of money, money is a great evaluator of the condition of our hearts. Money is a great barometer of where we are spiritually. So uh, sit there and well, you probably ought to put your boots on because we're going to go wading off into the distance here. I'm going to take you on a rabbit trail and it's going to be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but that's okay. Uh, you can clean your boots off later. But I, I want us to see this issue of taxes and again, as we're looking at this issue of taxes, I want us to really uh, look at the issue of money. 
Because again, just as with subjection to authority, the issue is our heart. Likewise, with the issue of taxes and money, the issue is the attitude of our heart. So authority, taxes, money, our relation to them are all heart issues. So again, money is a great uh, evaluator of the condition of our hearts. Money is a great barometer, again, of where we are spiritually. Money in and of itself is morally neutral. Money in and of itself is neither good or bad, neither righteous or evil. It's just neutral. And money is nothing more than a medium of exchange that defines how we live. Now, obviously, money is central to our everyday living, but money can't buy us happiness, and most certainly money can't buy us eternal life. Again, money and what we, how we use it does indeed reveal our spiritual condition and our relationship to God, and the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And again, how we use our money is an indicator of where our heart is. So all one needs to do is examine uh, your checkbook or your monthly credit card statement to determine where your heart is. How you spend your money, where you spend your money, demonstrates where your heart is. It demonstrates the priorities of your life. Now, some people come along and say, well, you know, money is bad. Money, money, money corrupts. But money doesn't. Money is neutral. Money is amoral. Now, most certainly there are corrupt people who have money. And they use that money and they manifest their unrighteousness by, again, the way they use that money. And the more money the unrighteous have, the more they tend to spread their corruption further. But money isn't the issue. It's the fallen, corrupt human heart that possesses the money. That's the issue. And most certainly there are some people who have money and they're not corrupt. And the way in which they manifest their righteousness, again, is one way in which they manifest their righteousness is the way they use money. So again, money isn't an issue. Money, money's not the issue. The heart is always the issue. Now, some people come along, some Christians come along, and they suggest, well, because money seems to be such a problem, uh, all Christians should just get rid of their money. We should take a, a, a vow of poverty. You know that throughout church history, people have done that. Take a vow of poverty and give all of our money away. Throw it all together in a common pot and, and divide it up equally and promote some kind of so-called Christian communism. But the Bible doesn't teach either one of those concepts. The Bible doesn't teach anything like these two last ideas. You're not going to find that in the Scripture. And again, there's nothing in the Bible that forbids Christians from possessing money. For the believer, we simply have to remember that everything we have belongs to the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. It all belongs to Him. Even, quote-unquote, our money. Our money really isn't our money. It all belongs to the Lord. Haggai, God to the prophet Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So God owns, next word, God owns everything. He owns everything. It all belongs to him. The earth, the gold, the silver, the cattle, the hills themselves, every beast of the forest, everything from the earth, everything in the earth, it all comes from him because it's his creation. He owns all of it. Even the gold, the silver, the nickel, the, the, the copper, by which coins are minted. The trees, the paper come from uh, to make the bills, they all belong to him. Everything comes from his creation. It's his earth. He owns it. Everything belongs to him. Now, I think we need to keep that in mind, especially when we come to the issue of money. Because, again, how we use money is nothing more than a barometer revealing our spiritual condition and our relationship with God. And again, when we die, we need to remember that we are not taking 
any of it with us. Right? We're not taking any of it with us. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. So again, everything belongs to God. Everything in the earth, everything on the earth, even the ability to create wealth belongs to God. That power comes from him. The mental capacities, the mental capabilities to attain wealth uh, come from God. God has given certain individuals certain abilities, certain gifts. Some people have great minds. Some people don't have so great minds. Right? When I was in college and working in college, I used to tell some of the guys I knew, you only get a certain amount of brain cells for life. You probably ought to protect them uh, to begin with. Some people come in with a great amount, and some people like you don't have as much to deal with. So be careful how you deal with them. Right? It, 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 the mental capacities, everything we have comes from the person of God himself. Right? So some, God, some people, God has given great minds. Uh, 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 mathematically, they're capable of inventing, th inventing things and diagramming things and making things. Some people are very gifted musically, artistically. They can make uh, money, uh, gain money or wealth from that kind of a, uh, those kind of enterprises. Everything belongs to God. All of our talents, all of our abilities, uh, everything uh, are, are giftedness. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks the question, what do you have that you've not received? Right? It's a great question. What do you have that you've not received? The answer is what? Nothing. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything comes from God. God distributes what he desires to whomever he desires and however he wills. Some people are born into wealthy families. Some people are born into poor families. But it's God who's in charge who determines all these things. And again, God gives gifts and talents to men for their good. And God wants, to, wants men to use what he gives to them for good, noble, beneficial purposes. So he gives all things, including wealth. Again, to be used in the needs of life, for food, clothing, shelter, even the joys of life. God wants us to enjoy his creation. He wants us to enjoy what he has made. But what men do with fallen hearts is men take that which God has given for good and they pervert it because of the evil in their own heart. Again, money is neutral. Money is amoral. It's without morality. In general, or generally in speaking, unbelievers tend to spend their discretionary money on those things. Uh, discretionary money means uh, things that aren't needed or, or excess, I guess, beyond food, clothing, and shelter. Uh, unbelievers tend to share, shed, uh, spend their money on those things that have no eternal value whatsoever. They tend to waste uh, God's resources. And perhaps even it's true to say that uh, the amount of money, most of the money that's spent in this world, this fallen world, probably goes to things that are evil, that are unrighteous. But it shouldn't be that way for the believer. While this world is fallen and men in this world pervert all things, God wants man to enjoy what he has given to him for his good. And for us who know Christ, things should be different. Maybe you should just look over real quickly at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. First Timothy 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, here it is, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of, of that which is life indeed. Now, if it's God who richly supplies us with everything we need to enjoy, 
and he does because that's his nature and character as our Heavenly Father. He desires us as his children to enjoy that which he's given to us. Again, he's the one who made the world, put us in the world, given, given us all things that, that, that we need. He supplies all things that we need to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking your family on a vacation to enjoy God's creation. There's nothing wrong with buying a new couch or nothing wrong with buying a new car. There's nothing wrong with buying a, a, a dress for your wife or your daughter. As long as you realize that God is the one who's given you the ability to make wealth. Everything comes from him and you're thankful to him for what he has provided for you. And on the other side, there's nothing inherently extra spiritual about you taking a, a vow of poverty. As good stewards of, of God's resources, we should think carefully on how we use the money that God has given to us. Is a $100,000 car necessary? Especially if you get one for twenty dollars or $30,000 and it meets your needs. And I have no idea of the second one. I'm just shooting in the dark here because I don't know. Do, 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 do you need a $400 pair of shoes? Some women say, yeah, I do. I don't know. <laughs> Could you get by on a $100 pair? Right? I mean, those, those are decisions that, that every woman has to make. I don't know where to put this one. I told my family about this a couple of days ago. Uh, someplace in a local advertisement, I, I saw locally a Lamborghini for sale at $720,000. Now, I thought to myself, if I, if I don't buy the one for $720,000, because there was a couple listed for $400,000, then I could use that $300,000 that I saved not buying the $700,000 one, and I could probably do something like buy a boat or a $100,000 car and still have money left over, right? I, I should have worked in the government accounting office because I pretty much think that's how they do things, right? So we have to decide what's reasonable with, with what God has given us. The Bible does warn us, and you're in 1 Timothy 6, right? Look back at verse 10. He does warn us about the danger of the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. By some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The Bible warns about the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with, in, with its income. This too is vanity. Verse 11 of that chapter, he says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So he's just saying, you just need to be very careful of falling in love with money. How much money do you need? Answer, just a little bit more. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? That's the answer, just a little bit more. We have to be careful, though, when we make that kind of a statement, to say, if I only had more, then I'd give more away. If I only had more, then I, then I give it away and I give it here. It's not how much you have. It's not much how I have. It's our heart. It really is a heart attitude. What do you do with what you have? That's the issue. Because there's a great tendency. We say, well, if I only had a little bit more, I'd give more away. But the honest, if we're honest, the, the great tendency is if we had more, we'd probably spend it on us. Because that's what we tend to do, even as believers. We'd probably spend it on us. So again, the issue is not what you do if you want a million dollars. The issue is what do you do with the $10 in your pocket right, right at the moment. Jesus says in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous uh, also in much. 
So again, verse 17 here of this chapter, um, Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So again, we have to be careful that we don't love money, we don't fall in love with money, we don't set our affection on money or on riches, but God, because money doesn't supply our needs, God does. God's the one who supplies us with everything we need and all things to enjoy. Again, the love of money really is the root of all kinds of evil. Money, again, is not evil. Money is amoral. A heart is the issue. If we're thankful to God, then we can enjoy the things that God has given us freely to enjoy because, he, again, He is a, is a good Heavenly Father. And we can spend the resources that God has given uh, to us on ourselves or uh, verse 18 of 1 Timothy says, with the resources that God has given us, he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So again, money isn't the issue. Money is just a barometer of our spiritual health, our relationship to God, and what we think is more important, either those things that are temporal or those things that are eternal. So again, we can spend all the resources that God has given us on, on ourselves, or we can store up some of it for the eternal future, meaning that we can invest our resources, instead of me buying that $720,000 Lamborghini, maybe we can invest our resources uh, uh, in they, those things that serve God, those things that help uh, uh, other people, those things that are of eternal value, uh, investing in the hearts and the minds and the eternal destinies uh, of those around us versus indulging ourselves. So we all have to make those kind of personal decisions. And again, when it comes to the issue of paying taxes, the kind of the top issue that we're kind of looking at here, when it comes to the issue of us paying our taxes with our money, our money actually isn't our money. It belongs to God. He gives it to us, and again, he says, pay your taxes. Believers are to be in subjection to ruling authorities and we're to pay our taxes. Again, those are the two imperatives in the first seven verses of the top of Romans 13. So we just need to do this because God has commanded us to do it. We pay our taxes, we subject ourselves to, to, to rulers, those in authority, because they're servants in God's stead. They're servants in His service. And we saw, again, that the tax system, again, uh, in, in general, was ordained by God, set forth by Joseph in Egypt. When 20% of the crops were uh, gathered during the good years and to supply the needs of the nation in the lean years. And this system has become somewhat of a, a pattern of future governments to use, that they would collect the resources of the people so that they could be distributed back to them when there's a time of need. But as I stated, Joseph is in pagan Egypt. Uh, the question arises, what does God do when he establishes the nation of Israel? Do they have a taxation system? And we saw from the scripture, the answer to that question was yes, and it was known as the tithe. And we worked our way through some of the Old Testament texts, and we saw that there was a number of tithes. Uh, uh, the word tithe does indeed mean a tenth portion, but re reality, when you look at the Old Testament, uh, what the Old Testament saint paid, it was probably closer to 23 to 25% of their annual income. You had the Levite tithe, you had the festival tithe, you had the welfare tithe. And on top of that, there was a taxation uh, uh, for, the, for the tabernacle. And on top of that, there were a few other land use taxation issues, uh, dealing with gleanings and volunteer plants, etc. and so on. 
So again, when you properly understand the Old Testament saint and the concept of the tithe in the Old Testament, it's probably closer to 23 to 25% uh, more than the, uh, 20, the 10% we often think of when we think of that word. And then we looked at the New Testament, tried to understand the taxation system there, and we saw that Jesus himself provides the example uh, for New Testament believers, even under this Roman system that is uh, corrupt and ruthless. Uh, the taxation, taxation system uh, of the Roman government is, is corrupt and uh, pagan, and it's hard, yet Jesus set the example by paying his taxes. And the first example we looked at was the request from the temple official to pay the temple tax, and we saw uh, the God's son, or as God's son, Jesus really has no responsibility to do so, but he does so because he doesn't want to be an offense to the religious authorities. Uh, uh, and it would be this same system, uh, this religious system, the same group of evil, evil, corrupt religious authorities that would use the money from the temple, uh, the tax collected from the from people in the, in the temple, in that treasury, and they would use that money to bribe Judas who would betray Christ, yet Christ paid the tax. He paid the temple tax. Because again, Jesus, when he came onto the scene, he had no desire to cloud the issue. He had no desire to cloud the issue for why he came to the earth. And he came to the earth not for physical, temporal issues. He came for eternal issues. He had an eternal purpose. Not for monetary reasons, again, not the temporal. Second issue we looked at was concerning, and concerning this issue of paying taxes uh, was directly to the government when Christ spoke the famous line, render to Caesar those things that belong to Caesar, right? Unto God those things that are God's. So again, money isn't really anything. It's money is something that God gives us to use, to live with, to order to purchase items uh, that we need, food, uh, clothing, shelter, etc., and so on. But Christ had the understanding, the proper understanding of money. He said that that it's just a material item. If it has Caesar's image on it and he wants it back, what? Give it to him. Give it back to him. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Again, the coin's got his image, got his picture. In the end, the whole thing's going to do what? Burn up. Right? He wants it back, give it to him. Because in the end, what does it matter? We don't trust in money. We trust in God to provide us all things that we need. We're God's children. So we give to God what God desires. And what belongs to him? What does belong to him from his children? Well, the, the, the real thing that belongs to God from us is our love, our worship, our, our adoration, our devotion. Those are the things that belong to him from us as his children. So that's what we did kind of very, very quickly uh, last week. We looked at the issues of tithing and taxes. Now, I want us to understand in, in the Bible, again, coming under this heading of, of money, there are really only two categories of giving in the Bible. There's required giving, and it falls under the heading of tithing and taxes. Right? That's required giving. That, that's non-optional. That's what required means. It, it's required. But the tithe of the Old Testament is really a concept for the nation of Israel. The tithe is something that already belongs to God. Uh, Malachi 3, you remember that? Uh, we read it. God's people, when they don't give their tithes to the Lord, God says they're in essence robbing him. They already belong to him. The tithes were given in order to fund the government uh, of the nation of Israel. And so the tithe took care of the priests who were the Levites, who were basically the officials of the government. Uh, the, the tithe took care of the religious and corporate life of the nation. The tithe took care of the welfare uh, system in, in the nation, taking care of the poor, the, the widows, and the orphans. So the tithe should never biblically be confused with the issue of free will giving. So that's the second category. So first category is required giving, that's taxes and tithing. 
Second category of biblical giving is free will giving. And what I want to do tonight is have us go back through the Old Testament and see the origin of free will giving. And then I want us to see real quickly what God requires from us in the New Testament as believers. But before I can do that, I have to say one more thing on this issue of tithing to help us understand that the tithe is an Old Testament concept. The tithe really has no carryover into the New Testament, no carryover for the church. Now, the issue of tithing is somewhat a controversial issue. I understand that. There's all kinds of people got all kinds of things to say, pro and con, about the issue of tithing in the New Testament church. But it confuses the issue. And and, and I think for a lot of us, it's a confusing issue because we perhaps grew up under a system that we were taught that God requires tithing in the New Testament church. There's some churches that if you want to join, well, you think our application's tough. There's some churches that if you want to join, they say, okay, bring in your checkbook. Bring in your pay stubs. I'm not joking. Let us see. So we can make sure you're given the right amount. We don't do that. And the reality is in the New Testament, there's never one command ever given in the New Testament church to tithe. Or that the tithe is something that God wants us to continue in the New Testament church. And that he does that by certain inferences that we can draw from certain texts of Scripture. There's nothing that says in the New Testament church to tithe. Now, as far as I can see, uh, there's no place in the New Testament Jesus or any of the apostles ever taught the necessity of tithing. Neither do we find a statement that says they practiced tithing. Now, again, I know there are many good men, many godly men who teach that tithing is for the church, that tithing is for the believer today. But I really think that's clinging to an Old Testament theology that, in my opinion, does not apply to the church. And I'm not trying to say something bad against anybody's uncle, father, pastor in the past. But I just don't see it in the New Testament. I think that's another one of the issues that brings confusion when you confuse the difference between the nation of Israel and the church. They're two separate entities. And again, tithing was a part of the Old Testament law. It was instituted for the nation of Israel. Again, it was a means to fund the theocracy. And the New Testament church is not Israel. And as New Testament believers today, we're not under Old Testament Mosaic law, nor do we live as New Testament believers in a theocracy. As New Testament believers, we're not under legal and economic and social religious system that was was in place in the Old Testament. As New Testament believers, we're not under under any kind of legal system of external rules and legal regulations that we have to keep in order to to keep our, our, our walk with God. As New Testament believers, we're not under, under law whatsoever. We're under what? We're under grace. And such, as such, we're not concerned with legal matters or external issues. Rather, we're actually concerned with matters of the heart. We're concerned with matters of the heart, matters of the inner man. We're concerned with issues of the heart. We're concerned with the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life who now permanently indwells the New Testament saint, something against which no Old Testament saint knew on a permanent basis. So anytime in the New Testament when you come to the issue of tithe, it's only used, and it's only used just a few times, eight times in the New Testament. It's always used in the context of speaking of historical occurrences uh, which uh, were uh, pertaining to issues dealing with the Old Testament uh, economy or Israel's economy in the Old Testament. The word is never used in the New Testament in such a way that it can imply that this is one of the rules for life in the church, in spite of what many people still teach. Of the eight occurrences that are in the New Testament, five are found in the book of Hebrews. 
They're found in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 7 is often used as a quote-unquote proof text by those who teach the tithe is illegitimate for today. But, and in that uh, Hebrews chapter 7 passage, it's a historical reverence, uh, reference to Abraham who paid tithes to Melchizedek. So those who want to support that the tithe in the New Testament is a new, or the tithe is a New Testament concept, they, re, 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 uh, they go back to this situation that really predated the law. Uh, therefore, they, should be, uh, they argue that it should be an, uh, a guideline for all uh, in, in church history. But that kind of thinking really has some problems with it. Uh, first of all, there are other Old Testament practices that predate the law that we don't use, nor uh, require them as norms in, in the church today, such as the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath is a, is, a, is a concept that predates the law. The, the idea of the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest is tied to the book of Genesis, back to the, to the issue of creation. Again, given to men uh, uh, before the law was given to Moses. We don't worship on the Sabbath. We, in the New Testament church, we worship on the Lord's Day, right? We worship on the first day of the week. Circumcision, again, is a, an issue that predated the law. Abraham was circumcised along with all the males in his family. That's before the law was given to Moses. And today, circumcision obviously doesn't have any kind of requirements for the New Testament believer. So there's a problem when we start pulling these things out of, out of context. The second problem with in, in insisting that the tithe is for the New Testament church, it really goes against the idea of uh, free will giving. Free will giving. Uh, you can look over at First, uh, uh, first Corinthians uh, chapter 16 just for a second. We're, we're not going to go too far here tonight, but perhaps we will next time, Lord willing. But, but look at First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, <clears throat> as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do uh, you also. Verse 2. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Right? There's going to be a collection taken, but it's not the tithe. As you may prosper. There's no percentages. Again, there's no place in the New Testament <clears throat> that suggests that tithes are the norm for the believer. There's no, there's no place in the New Testament that says 10% <clears throat> belongs to God and the other 90% belongs to me. It's just not taught. In fact, again, if you insist on uh, the idea of the tithes for the uh, New Testament believer, again, it's going to be much more than just the 10% that most people normally think of. Uh, again, Old Testament saints is probably somewhere between 23 to 25% of their annual income. So if you want to insist on the tithe for the New Testament, you need to increase your giving, more than likely. Right? You need to get it up there, 23 25%. That's going to keep you more in balance with what the law demanded. But again, tithe is not required giving in the New Testament. There's no reference about the tithing in the part of New Testament giving. Uh, it's not mentioned in that, uh, that verse we just read. There's no passage of Scripture where Jesus ever made it an issue. There's, nor did Paul, nor did Peter, nor did James. Uh, there's nothing that anybody else amongst the New Testament writers said on this issue that makes it a requirement. It's just not there. The only kind of required giving in the New Testament text is pay your taxes. It's pay your taxes. Because government works for God. Government is a minister of God to restrain evil and to promote good. 
So when you pay your taxes, you're actually supporting God's work. We talked about that. It's really an act of uh, worship. We don't think about worshiping by paying our taxes. But before God, that's really the idea. Because the, the, the government is, are his ministers. So again, biblically, there are two categories of giving. Required giving, we've covered that. And then free will giving. And we're going to look at that right now. The concept of free will giving. And, and to do that, we want to start back in the book of Genesis. So go back to Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 4. Here's the first example uh, of uh, an offering brought um, from men to God, or the, the, the example of the first offering uh, brought from men to God. It's an offering given to God by Cain and Abel. And, and there's nothing that suggests in the text that it's anything other than just voluntary giving and a voluntary offering. Uh, Genesis 4, verse 3. So it came about that on the course of time, the king brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the, of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought the firstling of the flock and of the fat of their portions. Now again, there's no specific command listed to do this. God didn't tell them to do it. At least it's not recorded for us in the scripture. Therefore, I would come, there's no other conclusion to come to except that this is just a voluntary offering by their own free choice. Nevertheless, we do know there was an issue with the offering since Abel is the one who brought the fruit of the ground and <clears throat> evidently he didn't do the right thing. Apparently God had revealed to them at some point that they were to bring an animal sacrifice. But that's not really the issue for the evening. Uh, the issue is here that they bring it of their own free will. That's the, that's the concept. Go over to chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8. There's another offering made. It's made by Noah after the flood subsides and immediately goes out. As soon as he comes out of the ark, he makes an offering. Sacrifice to the Lord. Genesis 8, for 20, 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Again, there's nothing in the text that suggests anything other than it's completely voluntary. It's of Noah's free choice to do this. Something he determined to do out of his own heart, and he did it spontaneously. And again, both of these offerings, there's nothing to suggest whatsoever, any kind of percentage. Go over to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Here, Abram, Abraham, we know him more commonly, but Abram has been called by God to be the leader of the nation. Genesis 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord and who had appeared to him. Again, there's no command given. There's no requirement of God. This is Abram's response to God for God's goodness, for his mercy towards him. Abram desires to simply just to thank God for his love, for his grace. And he gives him an offering he, uh, by, by way of an offering. If we find the same thing over in chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Again, voluntarily, out of love, in response to God's goodness, in response to God's mercy and grace, completely, spontaneously. That's the pattern of free will giving. Now, the first time the concept of 10% is mentioned in the Bible, uh, the first, uh, at first has to do with Abram and his dealings with the king of Salem, a guy we know more commonly as Melchizedek. 
And not only was Melchizedek a king, but he was also a priest. And Abram had just returned from a great battle, bringing back all of the possessions that had been taken from him, uh, along with Lot, and who'd been carried off, and then uh, all the women and the other people. Genesis 14, verse 17. Then after his return uh, of the defeat of uh, Ketolomir, and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and now he was the priest of the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. So the things went well, obviously, for Abram in the, in the battle. And to this man, a king, a priest, uh, the Most High God, one who represents God, Melchizedek. Abram wants to express his uh, thanks for, uh, to God for victory. So what does he do? Verse 20. He gives him a tenth, gives him 10% of all the spoils of the plunder. Now there's nothing in the text that says God told him to do this. And there's nothing recorded anywhere that God told him to give this certain percentage. And I don't see anything in the text that really suggests that Abraham gave Melchizedek 10% of everything he owned. It just says 10% of everything that he took in the battle. So again, this is the first time in the history of men, at least recorded in the scripture, that this 10% was given. And as far as I know, Abraham, who lives to about 160 years of age or so, this is the first time and the last time ever recorded anywhere in the scripture regarding him that he ever gave 10%. There's nothing that suggests uh, Abram was commanded. There's nothing that suggests that he did it on an annual basis. There's nothing to suggest anything other than the fact that just something he decided to do, Abram decided to do, motivated by gratitude towards God for his victory. Motivated by a heart that was thankful towards God for something God did. And he did, Abram did it of his own free will. Not required, not commanded. Nor was it something to be used as a pattern for the rest of the history of the church. It's just not in the story. Go over to Genesis 28. Jacob gave God a tithe in Genesis 28, verse 22. This is the stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of that thou hast given me, I surely give a tenth to thee, right? So here's, here's the story of Jacob. He's in the middle of making a vow to God. And the vow really is in the context of saying this, God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. Go back to verse 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will give, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then... The Lord will be my God. Verse 22, And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that thou dost give me I will surely give a tenth to thee. Now, just a suggestion, but this probably ought not to be our standard of tithing or an example by which you want to uh, build in a New Testament theology of tithing that doesn't exist biblically. Because the truth is, Jacob really here is at a low point spiritually. And he's really trying to buy off God. God, if you will take care of me, God, if you will keep me safe on my journey, 
God, if you'll give me all the things I need, like food and shelter and clothing, to where then you'll be my God. Then I'll give you a tenth percent. Oh, and God says, thank you very much, Jacob. I really appreciate that, right? No, it doesn't say that. But that's kind of the attitude of Jacob towards this whole situation. So again, Jacob's probably not the probably not the example you want to follow. Again, uh, there's no command here uh, by the sovereign for Jacob to give 10%. This is just something Jacob wanted to do, something uh, Jacob did voluntarily, although his motives were uh, incorrect. Now turn over to the book of Exodus, Exodus 25. And here's where you're going to see just a tremendous story again into the category of free will giving to the Lord. And it has to do with the building of the temple. Genesis 25, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel, verse 2, to raise a contribution for me. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you said we're talking about free will giving here. I mean, here's a command. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. Listen to the next line. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. From every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. There's no demand from God. No demand for a universal percentage that's going to be extracted from every man for all of time. It's not there. God's telling Moses, look, I want an offering for the tabernacle, but I want, only, I want everybody to give according to how their heart moves them to give. No percentage is demand. There's no pressure. There's no coercion. There's no outside agent, ad agency who puts up the thermometer in the corner of the room so we can see how you're giving it, right? There's no great plan on the table here to make you feel guilty you don't give enough to the capital campaign none of that God says look I just want you to take an offering from those who have a willing heart and let them bring what they want to bring the amount that they want to bring the Lord spoke to Moses saying tell the sons of Israel raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him you shall raise a contribution verse 3 and this is the contribution which you will raise from them Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting and spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones for the settings for the ephod and for the breastplate. And then let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Now I have to turn over a couple pages. You've got to go all the way over to chapter 35 of the book of Exodus. Uh, to begin to see how the story ends. A whole bunch of things happen in the middle. But you get to Exodus chapter 35 and you see how this offering turns out. Exodus 35 verse 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, this is the thing which the Lord has uh, commanded saying, uh, verse uh, 5, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution. Again, take again from whoever has a willing heart. Let him bring gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins and acacia wood and oil for lighting and spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance of incense 
and, and uh, uh, onyx stones and setting uh, stones for the ephod and the breastplate. Verse 10, and let every skillful, skillful man among you come and make the Lord and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle and its tent, its covering, the hooks and the boards and its bars, the pillars and its sockets. Look down to verse 21. And everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its services and for the holy garments. Verse 22, Then all whose heart moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hairs and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Verse 21, or verse 24, everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought to the Lord's contribution, and every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of service brought it. And all the skilled women spun uh, with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. And all the women whose hearts were stirred uh, with uh, a, a skill uh, spun the goat's hair. And the rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for the setting of the ephod and for the breastplate and the spices of the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrance, fragrance, uh, uh, fragrant incenses. And Israel and all the men whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done brought freewill offerings to the Lord. Look over at uh, this next chapter, chapter 36, verse 1. Now, Bezalel and uh, Olahab had every skillful person whom the Lord had put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work of the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in according with all that the Lord had commanded. And Moses called both these men and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to work to perform it. And they received from uh, Moses, uh, all, all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought them to perform, the work of, in the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the works of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. Verse 5, And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation uh, was uh, sent through the camp saying, let neither man nor woman any longer perform the work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Now, I must have read something wrong here when I read that, right? I mean, verse 5 again. They said to Moses and the people were bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded. So Moses issued a command and the proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman or any other longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. 
uh, pastor, let me tell you something. You, you can't preach a sermon like this. Uh, you, you can't preach a perp, uh, sermon telling people not to tithe uh, because we're never going to raise the budget we need. We're, we're, we're going to go broke. If you just tell people what they, they can give whatever they want to give, uh, th then it's going to be a problem around here. Uh, we need to demand people that they tithe. That's most people's thinking. And you can see that here in this text that we've just read, that line of thinking is not true. Why? Because when a man's heart is motivated by the mercy of God in his own life, by God's grace in his own life, when a man's heart is changed, transformed, and he has received the goodness of God, his heart is full of thankfulness towards the Lord. And he gives to the Lord from a willing heart. Because that's what God wants from his children. I mean, and are we not his children? I mean, God's our father. He's not going to demand that we give to him. Uh, like, like he needs something we possess. And again, do we love him so little that we have to wait till out of fear we're commanded by God to give to him? That's not the kind of love that God wants to see for the New Testament saint. What kind of love needs to be commanded to give? You know, we, we don't do that in our families. We just love our families because they're our families. And again, God's children with hearts that are moved by his mercy and his grace his compassion don't need to be commanded. We don't need to see your checkbook. We don't need you to bring in your bank statements. Again, these guys are building a temple, and God says, from people who have a willing heart, bring. And the reality is these people are bringing too much. And God says to Moses, you've got to stop these guys. Send out a text or an email. Or bang it out in a drum, something. I mean, you got to tell people to stop bringing all this stuff, right? We got too much gold and silver and bronze. And again, when people's hearts are moved by God's mercies in their own life, by the compassion of God in their own lives, they're going to be willing to give to ministries. They're going to want to be giving to ministries that they can be involved with that exalt the person of God in Christ. Amen? Right? You're not going to have to command them to do anything, to give. People who have hearts that have been moved and they believe in that ministry that, again, exalts God in Christ, they're going to give too much. And too much is a nice problem to have, right? To give beyond the need. And, and that's your heart here in this congregation. You, you really give beyond the need. So the truth is tithing isn't for the New Testament. It's for the theocracy in Israel. And we're not a theocracy and we're not Israel. And the tithe isn't commanded in the New Testament anywhere for the New Testament saint. The only thing that's really commanded in the New Testament is pay your taxes. That's it. And again, when you're stuck on this 10% kind of idea, uh, you're given really out of legalism, not out of love. God requires from the heart free will giving, free will offerings. Every man whose heart moves within him shall bring contribution. And the truth is God hasn't changed. The principle hasn't changed. The only required giving in the New Testament is pay your taxes. Now, the principle of free will giving, that, uh, that uh, obviously applies directly to the church, and we'll do that First Corinthians passage next time, but set aside as the Lord blesses and bring contribution. Right? 
So there's a number of things we need to look at next time, Lord willing. Uh, um, I'll just give you the headings. When we talk about giving, it really should be purposed and planned. It should be proportional giving. That's an important concept uh, because that's another issue that shows you how, how really messed up the 10% thinking is. Proportional giving, again, it should be always out of a joyful heart. Not from external legalistic demands from a heart. From the heart. Did I say that at the beginning? I was going to mention that word over and over again. It's from the heart. God is concerned about the heart. When a man is moved by the mercies of God in his whole life, he sees everything, every interaction with the person of God, with all those around him, in the church, outside the church, with governing authorities, through the mercies of God. Even how he deals with money that doesn't belong to him to begin with, he's just a steward of the resources that God has given. All right? Let's be done. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for the time that we've had in the Word this morning and this evening. We thank you that you are the one who uh, supplies all of our needs. It's not money, it's you. And you're the one who gives grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. All of it belongs to you and you have given to us the most most precious thing uh, that you own. Uh, That would be your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that makes our relationship with you possible. So we trust you help continue to work on our hearts to understand the issues of money and finances and free will giving, et cetera, and so forth. And help us to realize that our needs aren't met again by money. They're met by you. And you promise to supply everything we need. And help us again to think clearly on the issue of what does it really mean to believe for us in the room and perhaps for those uh, loved ones that we interact with. Uh, May what we uh, spoke about this morning be helpful. We love you and we honor you and just thankful for our time together in your word this evening. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.